Welcome to episode two of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. Today, we're going to be talking through the first few pages of uh, chapter one on Romans 13. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. I am the author of the book. And then we also have Pastor Peter Hagen, who is the editor of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. How are you doing today, Peter? Great. How are you? Fantastic. Uh, so what I wanted to do is begin by reading the introduction to Romans chapter 13 chapter, because it's a, uh, the first few paragraphs are based on one of the best movies ever made from, uh, it says in the princess bride, Sicilian mastermind Vizzini, the giant Vesic and the Spaniard swordsman Inigo Montoya have kidnapped princess buttercup over and over. Vizzini keeps using the word inconceivable to describe his bewilderment. The hero, the dread pirate Roberts, is gaining on them through eel-infested waters. The dread pirate Roberts is closing in on the group as he is below them, climbing the rope up the cliffs of insanity. From the top of the cliff, Vizzini cuts the rope. The dread pirate Roberts does not fall. Instead, he's holding on to the stony face of the cliffs of insanity. More than that, he begins climbing the cliff. Once more, Vizzini exclaims, inconceivable. Inigo Montoya then challenges Vizzini on his usage of the term. He says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Do you know that scene from The Princess Bride, Peter? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm well acquainted. I've seen that movie a uh, number of times. All right. I mean, that's one of the things that I ask my friends. If they don't like the movie, uh, our friendship is kind of called into question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More than that. I call your... Um, your, your choice in all things in a question, like your choice of pizza, your choice of um, your choice of books that you read, your choice of friends. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I like it. So the reason I chose that particular quote to begin this chapter, and really to begin the book is uh, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And from Romans 13, you know, we hear uh, St. Paul saying, and that we are to submit to the governing authorities. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. That's the NIV 11, but where they have translated, let everyone be subject to, in most other translations that we use, it's submit. So, Peter, what, do, what did you hear mm -hmm. in 2020 and following when it came to uh, submission to governing authorities. What does that word submit? Yeah. What, what do you think that people would say to you and me and other Christians, Hey, you just have to submit to the governing authorities. What, what were they thinking that word meant submit? Yeah. And I think, um, it's a very good question because when we talk about submit to the governing authorities, especially in the context of we are all you know, concerned about this particular pandemic and its fallout. Um, it, it's very easy to have a glitch in your thinking to say, submit to the governing authorities means that I will do whatever it is that they're asking me to do, as long as it doesn't <laughs> cramp my style too much, or as long as I can rationalize it in some way. Um, and in, I think I mentioned this in our first episode, or even here in Ohio, um, our own governor, you know, when he was talking about this and he was requesting that that churches stop holding services for a while um, in his own Twitter account, he 
he named that in his you know Christian faith tradition, it was still possible to maintain and share the Christian faith without meeting in person for for a time. And it's almost like a, a jump in thinking from submit to the governing authorities means therefore um, do everything that they that they tell you to do. And um, and I, th I thought that was one one part that you brought out in this chapter that was really helpful to think that through a little bit more deeply. I appreciate that. And that's what I was getting at. And I've been working on some questions for the study guide for the book because um, Christians and pastors and teachers have been asking for a study guide to use the book uh, on their own for a Bible class, for a small group Bible study and so forth. And so what I've got is just some questions uh, as we go through the first few pages uh, to, today in this episode. Uh, and one of those questions then is, who are scriptural examples of uh, people that we as Christians are to submit to? So that's, that's the first thing. And, you know, we look at that, you know, you and I can bounce back and forth, you know, who are some of the people that we are to submit to as Christians? Um, I think of Hebrews chapter 13. Um, remember your leaders and who are over you in the Lord or however he phrases it, and submit to their authority because they keep watch over your souls as men who must give an account. Um, there's that, that idea of, you know, submit to their authority is, is the phrasing that, that we use there. Um, and so then broadly speaking, um, within the church, there is a, a spiritual authority that God has called this man to be your pastor and that this man has a responsibility to the one who is above him, who is the Lord, um, as well as a responsibility to the calling body. Um, and he has a responsibility to those who are um, underneath him. Um, so right. there's that element of submission there. So, so one, one person, or maybe if you're a congregation with several pastors that we submit to our, our spiritual leaders, our pastors in the grade school or high school might be teachers in a college setting and might be Christian professors and so forth. Uh, and so we submit to them, but does that mean that we obey them. That's kind of what I'm getting at in this chapter of does that word submit means what you think it means? And I think a lot of people were saying submit and they equated it with obedience, mm -hmm. right? And does that mean, Peter, that you say something and say, you know, I want this color carpeting in the church, or I want you know these hymns chosen, or I want these flowers planted outside. Does that mean that your members have to go with your choice of carpeting flowers and hymns? No, not necessarily. No. Um, and I think and there is some considerable overlap between submit and obey, or even you know respect and obey. Um, but they, they are not exact synonyms. And, and that starts to come out when we think of the other avenues, you know, whether it's different questions related to the pastoral ministry and how they interact with the congregation or different times and ways that that word submit is used, um, such as, you know, children submit to your parents and the Lord for this is right. Or um, talking about wives submit to your husbands or Christians submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, and that, that pulls out that error of thinking that submit is not an exact equivalent of obey, um, although obedience may be an element of submission. Right. And those are some other scriptural examples. Exactly. You know, wives are to submit to their husbands. 
husbands and wives together are to submit to Christ, that slaves are to submit to their masters. Today, we would equate that with employees are submitting to the employers. Children are to submit to their to their parents and grandparents and so forth. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in this first few pages of the book then is to look at that word submit that's in used in all of those things. Uh, Christian citizens to their governing authorities, children to their parents, uh, church members to their pastor, uh, and wives to their husbands is, uh, you know, what happens then if that husband is abusive to his wife, if the parents are abusive to their children, if a pastor is abusive with his words and actions toward his members, if an employer is abusive with his, with his words or actions toward his employees, do those uh, people that I mentioned, the, the children, the wives, the employees, the members, do they have to obey slash submit when they're, uh, those who would be in authority over them are being abusive? No, uh, because, yeah, that's the short answer. Yeah. Uh, slightly longer answer is uh, not always. Um, because when we talk about submission, and I think this was one thing we had talked about also, is that submit is, is an attitude. And, and some, you know, somebody even asked me, well, Pastor Hagen, aren't you drawing a distinction without a difference between submit and obey? Um, but when you, and I, I would say no, because they are not exact equivalents. Um, and you really see that when the authority is misused, when the authority within the home by, by the father is misused um, and he exasperates his children, um, when the authority with, um, with an employer or, or a contract worker, such as a, a slave in some of the Greco-Roman world, um, when that employer's authority is misused and that, it, that, that employee is maltreated, um, and the whole idea of submission isn't just the outward, outward obedience, but it's this attitude that the person above me is part of this natural order that God has designed for my benefit and where I submit to them, but they also have a responsibility to the one above them. And I submit there because of my respect for the one who is above them all. And so Paul says, submit to your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Um, that the submission to the parents is out of reverence for the Lord, but the Lord doesn't want us to uh, condone or submit in places where, you know, it's an abusive situation um, where it's been you know, very bad for the children um, or something like that. It gets into the, the specific applications that aren't always um, outward obedience, I would say. Right. And, and that's what I was getting at. There is in, in most of those situations, if a, if children are in an abusive relationship with their parents, we might say, you need to get out of that relationship and get those kids out of there. A wife who is in a, an abusive relationship with her husband, we might say, get out of there. An employee with her, uh, his employer, you know, members, their pastor is abusive with his words, get out of that. And yet, again, trying to make uh, equivalencies here. What do we say if citizens are being abused by their governing authorities? We say, oh, you got to stick it out. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do here is I don't know if that's fair. There's going to be times with all of those we might need to stay. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to say submit in all of those situations as are equal, 
then I think it calls into question the governing authorities too. But I don't, I don't think that's the way we've been understanding it properly. And oh, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the other question is um, in our particular American context where we don't have, we, we're supposed to have a balance of power among these three branches of government, but the citizen is so far removed from that between you know county government or city government, county government, state government. Um, there's like four layers of, you know, or five or six even layers of government between you and the one who is um, passing a law or an order that is infringing upon your particular, you know, freedoms. Um, and so when we're talking about that, the, the obvious answer when it's someone close to us, like let's get the children out of here, you know, dad has to move out um, or get away from the one who is abusing or we're going to help you find a new job and relocate. Um, when it's close to us like that, it is very, it's relatively simple and straightforward to, um, to resist, to get away, to, um, to not be in a, a hazardous, dangerous position. It is much more challenging when we're talking about this large amorphous bureaucracy of, um, and, and if they are misusing or abusing the authority that is, has been delegated to them, um, but we're still six or seven layers of government removed from, from that particular group. Right. And you kind of alluded to it here and then earlier too. And I don't know if I was very clear about it in the book as I was rereading it and working on the study guide on that there is, I think a lot of times we focus on our role as citizens with the government that we submit to them. And yet uh, what, what Paul says here is that these are the governing authorities who are God's servant. So they, to be God's servant, they have to submit to God. You know, they are, uh, they are to submit to him as to become God's servant. They have a responsibility to us, just like a husband and father have a responsibility to his wife and children, an employer uh, to expect submission by his employees. You know, he needs to be a good employer, uh, the same for a pastor and so forth. And the same as governing authorities. And I don't know if I do a great job, at least in these first few pages, talking about that. That's what I'm trying to bring that out in the book or in the study guide is to talk about what responsibility do governing authorities have toward their citizens to have a good, to, to have them submit. Because maybe I'm sure you've had these questions I have over my years in the ministry of wives that have come to me and then said, Pastor, how do I submit? Because they want to follow Ephesians 6. They want to follow, was it Ephesians 3? I mean, 1 Peter 3 of submitting to their husbands, but their husbands are not good leaders. Their husbands are not submitting themselves to Christ. That's tough. That takes a lot of counseling to go through. How do they submit to a husband who is not a Christian leader? Yeah, and, and that's, I'd have to do a little bit more of a word study on this, um, but it opens the door of how many times does the Bible use this word for submit? But in those cases, it also includes a reference to the one above that authority. Like Christians submit to their government, um, but that the government is instituted by God. And in effect, um, God will hold that governing authority accountable. Um, 
and, and in the same way, when we talk about you know, submission within the church or within the home, uh, the other states of life, I suppose you could say, um, there, is, there are copious references to the Lord who has given the, the home, given the family, um, or the responsibility that those in authority have to, to those beneath them, as well as the submission that they, um, that they exercise toward the God who put them and entrusted them with that authority. And, and that's kind of the, the difficult question when we get to um, submission to Romans 13 and the government, especially in the light of Revelation 13, is that, you know, typically the further away or the further removed the government governing authority is from us, the less impact they have on our lives. Um, you know, like whatever happens in Washington, D.C. any given day has very little impact on your day-to-day life as opposed to, you know, the most local form of government that you can get is probably an HOA. If you are a member of a, an HOA, yeah, that was one thing that we did not want. Um, if you're a member of an HOA, then that, then that local, local governing group can have substantial impact on how often you mow the lawn and what color your front door is going to be. Um, so the closer it is to your home, the more impact it has on your daily life. And conversely, the more ability that you have to resist or make a make a change when that person is exercising their authority out of their lane out of their bounds yep and, and we'll look at that i think next in the next episode but i like your your reference with the hoa that'd be one of the reasons why my wife shelly and i when we retire we want to go down south like tennessee where there's no one around us maybe because we don't want we don't like people anymore we're old and well one of us is crotchety and then there's my wife and then, uh, but yeah, that HOA is a good example. Uh, and, and part of it too is, uh, you know, what we talked about with submission oftentimes being a synonym for obey. So I, I write this on page three, submit is not a synonym for obey. Otherwise, there would be a lot of unhappy wives if they were called to obey their husband's every word and desire. Submit cannot mean quote, compelled obedience. Rather, it means humble acceptance according to the order God has given. And one of the things that I do talk about is, and I really encourage all of those who are listening to this podcast and YouTube video, is to read what Martin Luther has to say in his large catechism on the fourth commandment, that he spends uh, quite a bit of time on what children are to do in submission to their parents. But then the second half, he spends even more time talking about the role of parents, especially the father, and then a little bit on the governing authorities. Again, if uh, parents and governing authorities expect their children and citizens to submit to them, Luther says the fourth commandment, first of all, applies to them, Mm -hmm. that for obedience to happen, they have to be good godly leaders. And again, I don't know if we have stressed that so much when we have been teaching that as pastors and teaching that in our classrooms and so forth. Yeah, and and that's that's the particular challenge um, because, and, and this is a question that comes up fairly often, is that it sounds like the interpretation that you advocate for in this book, you know, the discussion of submit is not obey. Um, sounds like it would line up perfectly with, you know, particular conservative or uh, libertarian ideology. 
And, um, and the, the straw man argument that some that I've heard actually is, uh, oh, it's just, um, you know, kind of a libertarian take on Romans 13. Um, but realistically, you did a very good job of pulling together, especially what God says in Romans 13, as well as Lutheran history, as well as, you know, our confessional confessional books, like the large catechism is one of our six Lutheran confessions, where we can say, you know, this is actually part of the historic interpretation by the church, um, that submission by the one who is being served um, also means that the one who has the authority has a responsibility to the God who has given them that authority. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Uh, and then let's pick that up is, uh, I go on with page five and asking the question, who are the governing authorities, because Paul writes in verse one, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for no authority exists, exists except by God. And the authorities that do exist have been established by God. So then, you know, Peter, you were instrumental in adding on some of these things in the, in this first chapter, you know, this better than I do, because when you're bored and you said you read Supreme court briefs and so forth, and I'm, and I'm reading pearls before swine and watching star Wars movies. So, uh, who are the governing authorities here in America? Yeah, and, and that's kind of the interesting thing about um, the, the governing authorities that I, I referred to this, you know, both in the podcast and probably it comes up in the book um, talking about the way our country is constituted. And, and what we mean by that isn't just that, you know, what is the makeup of our country, but what is the constitutional basis for the way that our country operates, you know, the way that our country is constituted. And you think of, you know, the preamble to the constitution of the United States of America, um, we the people in order to, you know, form a more perfect union, provide for the common defense, et cetera, um, that we the people are the one who are drafting these constitution, constitutional articles, um, and, you know, fantastic commentary that if you, if you want to go down that, that rabbit hole, um, pick up a copy of the Federalist Papers, which are actually quoted more often than the Constitution itself, if you look at, like, look at all the Supreme Court briefs. And, and what, you, what you really see in the Federalist Papers is the, the mindset of the three guys who really shaped our U.S. Constitution that said that the people together are are putting this government together and that the authority rests with the people, um, especially in, in all the governing and that the rights are what preser are preserved for the people against the encroachment of the government. And so in their particular context, when they, when they wrote this, um, the two big ideas were number one, that the people need uh, some say in their own government, that the government just can't enforce their own will. Um, and that secondly, the other philosophical idea behind it is that the government governs with the consent of the people. Um, and that's, you know, going back to like John, John Locke, I think, um, that the government governs with the consent of the people. That is to say that the people give the government the authority to continue to carry out its governing. Right. And that's the thing I don't think a lot of people know anymore uh, because we don't teach civics and history in our schools anymore we see we teach social studies whatever those are that uh, we don't know these things and uh, when i've talked about this in in the pastor's conference where i presented this and again for our listeners uh, if uh, there's an opportunity 
to get me to come to talk to your congregation or a pastor's conference, a group, please contact me and I'll, I'll put that into the schedule. I'm already talking to a pastor's conference in Minnesota. And then since I'm going out there in September, I'm meeting with the congregation the night before. I'm happy to do that. And if I can't go because of distance, then we'll, we can do an online thing like this as well. Uh, but, but with that is, I think we have forgotten because as pastors and people, we don't know our civics as well as you do, Peter, is that we are, we are the governing authorities in America. You know, doesn't, you know, it begins, we, the people, and like you said, and I, and I quote Abraham Lincoln, I think four times in one paragraph. And I say, because he's a president and he's a lawyer, he mm -hmm. knows uh, everything way better than we do about how our government is supposed to work and how the government is supposed to work as he says over and over again, where I quote him is that the government submits to us as the people, but mm -hmm. we have gotten that turned around that, oh, the government says something I have to submit. So for example, uh, on my bike ride home from church today, and cause I'm recording in what we call our movie room at the house because the internet at church wasn't working. So I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about uh, different communities and it can be pretty much anyone around in the United States and Canada nowadays, where you have the, the public schools that are trying to hide from the parents if the kids want to become trans, if, if that was really a, a real thing. Okay. Uh, and what they're doing there in context of why I'm bringing this up here is the government, the public school system is taking away the authority from the parents mm -hmm. and they don't have that authority. But if we as Christian citizens say, well, the we just have to obey because we have to submit. Well, then we have to, if the government wants to do those kinds of things with our kids, then we have to let them. Mm -hmm. But if we follow what Luther says in his application of the fourth commandment, you no, know, the governing authorities of the government, they have to submit to the parents. The parents are the highest authority for their children and their household, and the government submits to us. Yeah, and, and I guess that's like the biggest question of how did we get to this point um, where you you have parents showing up to a school board meeting for the first time? Um, or if I say, you know, I've said this in a sermon, you know, just generally speaking, children belong to their parents. And yeah. it's shocking when you start to put start to put some flesh and bones on that. To, what does it mean that children belong to their parents? Well, means that you know parents have the responsibility for raising them for feeding them for um, helping to shape their impressionable young minds um, and it sounds it sounds almost preposterous or it sounds almost like crazy <laughs> um, as if it's something that had never been said before never been thought before that children belong to their parents um, which is just an outgrowth of that same idea that the authority of the government also is derived from the input and the direction from the people. Uh, the government definitely has bounds and the people have bounds to it, but it is, and I think it gets down to at least one element of it. It is, it is much easier to say, I'm gonna you know, ship my kids out the door for, for school and I'll see them in eight or nine hours. And I'm not gonna 
not going to look at politics at all until I'm told what I should be angry about so that I know what to vote for, what to vote against. Um, and that's a whole lot easier than sitting down to say, you know, what is the political philosophy behind this particular mindset? How did this shape itself out in human history? Um, or you mean I have to discipline my own children and make sure that they are receiving an education and make sure that they are so, you know, I have a relationship with them so that if their friends are coming up with all sorts of deluded and delusional ideas about these, you know, different sins that travel in social groups, which are typically sins of the body, you think fifth commandment, sixth commandment, um, these sins that travel in social groups that my child, number one, is spending more time in that atmosphere than in the Christian atmosphere we're trying to create at home. And then you come around to, well, children belong to their parents is, it sounds very shocking, um, but even more shocking that the government belongs to the people. <laughs> you mean I have a responsibility there too? Um, and I can't just sit back and have my Cheetos? <laughs> right. Yeah. And a couple of things on that. Uh, when you were talking about governing authorities, taking authority away from the people uh, without their consent and also governing authorities doing things that they don't really have the authority to do. They might have the power to do so. And that's different than authority. Uh, there are a couple of stories. I'm not sure if this one made it into the book or not, but when I was talking about power versus authority, I thought of my grandfather that, uh, I was the oldest of 18 grandchildren, and when we'd be around the, the dinner table and one of us didn't want to eat dinner, he would start unbuckling his belt. Uh, I don't know if somewhere along the line we were told that maybe like there used to be another grandchild that died from my grandfather or something, but uh, not really. But the key is he, ne I, he never once ended up taking that belt off and certainly never used it, mm -hmm. but Every single one of us, and I had some pretty naughty cousins, and they they all ate whatever was grandma put on the plate because mm -hmm. otherwise grandpa was there threatening to take off his belt. That was authority, okay? Uh, but people with authority, if they can't, if the authority doesn't work, then they abuse their power. Uh, some other examples I do use in, in the first chapter here is I remember when I was a young parent and my oldest daughter, Abby, who was probably like two, would not, was not eating. And my, my parents were there visiting us in Kentucky and my dad yelled at her. And that's the only time in all of my years that I remember ever yelling at my dad. But I, I told him, I said, you don't have the authority over her. I do. He was taking authority that did not belong to him. We see that in the government. Or another example I use in the book is you know, I have the authority in my eighth grade catechism class to tell them to do their memory work, be ready for their quiz and so forth. But I don't have the authority to have them come over and cut my grass or snow blow my driveway. Okay. Now, because if I did that, that's taking authority that does not belong to me. Mm -hmm. So again, I think there's examples where government is taking authority away from us that they don't have. Yeah, and, and some of those things even hit the news, whether it um, was our current president or the one before him or the one before him or the one before him. That takes us back to about the year 2000, if, you, if I counted those correctly, um, where this idea of an executive order right. um, came into play. 
And I, I, I chased it down. I don't know if I got a final definitive answer, but my, the answer I had at the time was that the executive of the federal branch of the government, AKA our president, has the authority to issue an executive order, but it only applies to federal property. And so it, you know, some of these executive orders get a lot of fanfare, but they have no bearing whatsoever, except if you, you know, perhaps walk into your local post office. <laughs> but it, it sounds like it has so much authority and impact that, oh, now my president said that I have to do this or that I cannot do that, you know, whichever president it happens to be. Um, and all it is, is not just a misunderstanding of authority, but also a communication that distorts what the authority actually is. And to take a step back and say, well, here's what, here's the way it's laid out and here's the responsibility among the parties. Um, and that I think helps to clarify things. Sure. And again, I was listening to a different podcast before we started recording this one. And there they were talking about how there are a Democrat, I think senators, that are unhappy with a number of the latest Supreme Court rulings. And so what they're going to be proposing is something, some kind of oversight of the Supreme Court, a code of ethics. And that is unconstitutional. It'd be pretty interesting if they create a law uh, to govern the Supreme Court and limit its powers and the Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. But the, but the whole concept is the... Uh, the Congress can't do that because mm -hmm. the way our framers of the constitution, our government created, I, you know, I don't know, Peter, if you were old enough to watch schoolhouse rock. Uh, I do, I do reference uh, it's just a bill on Capitol Hill, but one I'm thinking of here is the three ring circus. And you had the, the three ring circus of the presidential branch, the judicial branch, and then the lawmaking branch of the Senate and House and so forth. And the Senate and House, they don't have authority over the Supreme Court and so forth. It's mm -hmm. three equal branches. But like you said, uh, that the president has been for the last two decades plus taking authority that does not belong to him with executive orders. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if we're conservative, well, we like it when, say, President Trump does that, or if we're liberal, then we like it when President Biden does it or President Obama does it. But they're all wrong, right? Because yeah. they're and not the because they're not the ones. They don't have that authority. the uh, The lawmakers are the ones who are to be making the laws. Yeah, and 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 I mean, there is a little bit of application in um, in case law where some of these boundaries uh, have gotten a little bit fuzzier um, in what they have authority over. But you know, on, on the topic of executive orders, it's fairly straightforward. Um, but then you get into the, you know, ranging a little bit further afield, the issue of reality versus perception, that the reality doesn't matter as long as you, as long as you sell the perception, <laughs> that if people think that this is, you know, doing something um, or that it applies to me, that I, I do have to do whatever this man in the Oval Office said, um, then that's just this uninformed constituency and really an unexamined um, life with the, uh, in our relationship to the government. Right. So, so two, two things that come up and uh, this will come up later in the book, but, you know, if uh, President Biden 
says you know, everyone has to take you know the COVID shot, the COVID vaccine. Well, uh, there were a lot of people who then didn't do it and even sued, and then it was uh, found he couldn't do that. Or uh, if just most recently when he wanted to forgive, because you can't really do that, but forgive the debt of college students. And then the Supreme Court said, no, you don't have the authority to do that. Uh, and I do reference in the book later on of our Wisconsin governor Evers, when he said that um, you know churches were to close and, and so forth. And I said, and said it to pastors, he doesn't have the authority to do so. You know, anything past uh, 30 days, uh, he, he didn't have the authority under emergency powers. He kept going and he kept uh, renewing it. And, and then pastors would say to me, well, we don't know. We have to wait till the Supreme Court uh, decides on it. And I said, no, if I, if I have a robber come into my house uh, and I catch him and he's not guilty uh, of robbery and thievery the moment he's found guilty by the court system. He's guilty the moment he comes into my house. And our Governor Evers was guilty of breaking the law the moment he extended beyond his emergency powers. Because mm -hmm. he, he's taking a story that doesn't belong to him, is what we're talking about here. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the, the, other, the other matter of interpretation that comes in, is that religiously we are people of the book. Um, that we follow what scripture says and we strive to understand what it means and apply it to our lives. Um, but also in the world, civically, we're people of, of the letter as well, where we are governed by laws that have a particular meaning and particular application and, uh, and that it's our responsibility to be informed enough so that we know and can understand, is this a good application or a bad application? Is this a lawful law or is this something that is not actually, you know, within this person's authority and responsibility. So we're going to wrap it up with, with this question. And so Peter, why is it so important for pastors and people, us as Christian citizens to discuss these kinds of issues? Like we're trying to do with this book and a podcast like this. <laughs> Good question. I would normally toss questions like that back to the class, but uh, since you asked it, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very easy. Um, I where I would where I would go with that is one of the sayings that I that I've coined is um, policy precedent and poll make for bad practice. If you just have a policy about something, it's very easy to unplug your brain and say, "Well, this is what we do because this is our policy." If you look at your precedent and you say, well, this is what they did then, so therefore this is what we have to do now. Um, or if you take a poll, then you know this is what the majority said, so this is what we have to do. And spiritually, it makes for a bad practice because what it does is it distracts us from the actual words and, and we end up coming up with, um, with a caricature or a, a pretend image of what we think we're doing. And... I forget exactly how you worded the question, but I guess the, the bottom line is that if we don't keep going back and thinking about this thoroughly and having a discussion about it, then we'll just settle for an imitation or a simple reflection of what we think is a civic action or what we yeah. think is a Christian action. And we'll just get further and further away from a, um, an actual Christian application. 
and usually tending towards something that is easier and simpler. And I have to think less and less, just tell me, you know, red shirt or blue shirt, you know, brown shoes or black shoes, and then I'll get on with my life. But the red shirts in, in point of uh, being geeky with the book, the red shirts, those are the ones in Star Trek that go to the planet and die. Just throw also it out there. You know, also t- true. You know, stay away from the red shirts. Anyhow, keep going. <laughs> yeah. And, and we need to, um, you know, at starting the conversation here and hopefully, you know, it continues, whether you know, people contacting you or with the symposium topic this year um, to say, let's look again at what it actually means to live as a Christian under this particular government with the responsibilities that they have um, so that we can re-examine what our faith should look like and have something that our children can look at, you know, the documents that are the founding documents of our country and the documents of our faith and say, okay, I can put these two together and figure out how I should act instead of them saying, well, you know, my parents mortgaged it all for the sake of, of safety and laziness. And now who knows what freedom we have left in this country. Right. And I guess the way I would answer it would be, I, I think that, uh, like you said before, of just sitting back on the sofa eating your Cheetos, that's kind of the way we've been the last few years. And even again, I've heard this from other called workers of just saying submit and equating it with obey. That's like the eighth grade answer. And this is master level things that we need to be discussing. And when we don't challenge our governing authorities, I posit in, throughout the book then we are not fulfilling our vocation as Christian citizens. If we're just saying, obey uh, government, you do what you want. So I can sit on my sofa and watch Netflix. That's not being a Christian citizen, challenging the government and saying, no, you don't have the authority to do so. I have the authority over my children and my house and my life and so forth. That's fulfilling our godly vocation as citizens, uh, pushing back, answering questions, asking questions of them so that they can clarify all of those things. That's getting involved, but it takes time. Definitely. It takes effort. Uh, so a uh, couple of things here before we wrap it up. I, I found this because uh, I want to end each of our episodes with an email or something from Facebook or a book review. I just found this book review today on Facebook, I mean, on uh, Amazon. And some G. Bassett uh, person writes, this book really helped me understand Romans 13 and was highly edifying. Pastor Zelling's style of writing engages the reader easily and is understandable for, uh, for a layperson. While solid biblical and Christian doctrine is the foundation, I also enjoyed his frequent use of literary or movie references that helped draw me into the main point of each chapter. I also learned a lot about Lutheran history. The book neatly wraps our position as Christian citizen into how we are to live in our American form of government under the Constitution. This is one of those books I'll read a second time and share. It would be an excellent addition to any church library. So I agree with that last part too. I agree with all of it. Uh, but yeah, I'll buy some of these books for the church library. I had someone uh, back when uh, first the book first came out and I was teasing her. She didn't realize I was teasing her. I said, yeah, your pastors didn't want this in the church library. So she said, oh, this needs to be in there. I'll buy a second copy. So I was able to sell a second copy of the book <laughs> for the church library. So uh, for our listeners, uh, please uh, like 
the podcast, like Facebook, or like the YouTube, uh, subscribe to Resisting the Dragon's Beast YouTube channel and the Raised with Jesus podcast channel. Share these, comment on them, send emails to me or Pastor Hagen. Uh, you can also email me at resistingthedragonsbeast at gmail.com. And again, just a caveat that neither Pastor Hagen nor I are speaking for our churches or our grade schools, our church body. We're speaking for ourselves as pastors, but as Christian citizens as well. So anything else, Pastor Hagen? Nope. I think that's everything. All right. Well, Lord's blessings to our listeners, and we look forward to bringing you episode three next week.